The scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke. It's it, all of it. Uh, I was able to squeeze it all in. It's there in the in the bulletin, if you'd like to follow along. So let's give attention to the word of the Lord. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of, cry, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna over the next two weeks as sort of uh, as I gave it, uh, sort of a little preview to Sam and Carl, uh, we're in a season of Advent, which is leading up into Christmas. If you don't know what Advent means, it just means it's 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 the Latin word for coming. So uh, it has to do with the coming of Jesus. Now, if you know anything about Christianity uh, and you know some of the old creeds uh, that we recite week in week out here. You know that there there was one coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago when he came as a little baby in the manger, which is all about what Christmas is is about, as we'll see later. But um, there's also another coming of Jesus. Uh, and the, the old creeds, the old hymns talk about that, and that's what Advent is about as well. That this little Jesus, who once came as a, as a, as a little baby, a helpless little one, born in a manger, uh, born in a cattle stall, silent night, away in the manger, all of those things. He's actually coming again. And the creed says he's going to come again to judge the living and the dead. And so Advent has these two almost remarkable sort of juxtaposition of themes of sort of the helpless Jesus, meek and mild, and the one who is coming again to judge and to put right everything that is wrong. And so what I thought would be what I thought would be very interesting is to look particularly over the next two weeks at this figure of John the Baptist uh, in just particularly in Luke three. So this, this Sunday, we're going to look at the beginning of Luke three, which we just read from. And then next Sunday, we'll look at the latter half of Luke three, because John, uh, 
uh, from the reflection quote that we read at the beginning of the service, um, he sort of stands in this unique situation in redemptive history where he stands right, uh, right, he bridges the gap between the old covenant and the new. He bridges the gap between um, you know, it's sort of 400 years of silence and what uh, Luke records for us here, the word of God coming to John in the wilderness. Uh, he stands in this remarkable place in, re- in the history, the story of redemption, and he serves sort of as a spotlight. Uh, spotlight to what? Well, a spotlight to the light of the world, uh, to Jesus, what we sang about earlier, God's son uh, loves pure light. So John is, in, in a sense, he's the spotlight pointing to the ultimate light, the light of the world. And so what I want to do uh, this morning and then next week is look at John particularly. And what I want to do this morning is just look at three, three sort of basic truths about the story of Christmas, but you could think about that as being uh, as as more than just being about Christmas, but about Christianity. So uh, we're going to talk about Christmas, but I want you to understand that the the story of Christmas, the truth about Christmas, is is fundamental truth about Christianity, and 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 then all about ultimate reality. So uh, three truths about Christmas: first, Christmas is real; uh, second, Christmas demands repentance. And then third, Christmas is received. So Christmas is real, it demands repentance, and it's received. Um, Not every year, but very frequently over the last several years around this season, I turn to uh, sort of a gift that keeps on giving for me. Um, It's a little book entitled The Atheist's Guide to Christmas. And it's a remarkable little collection of essays, uh, both philosophical, historical, personal in nature, uh, written by a number of self-professed atheists, people who don't believe in God, don't sort of hold to any uh, sort of institutional religion. And I, I keep coming back to this book because it's it's remarkable in many ways, and it helps me understand uh, people that I know, uh, what they may be thinking about Christianity, co-workers, friends, neighbors. Um, and I was reading one essay in particular, uh, and it was uh, this earlier this week, and it was written uh, by a, a mother who's who's thinking about her own daughter and the fact that her daughter wants to celebrate Christmas and is beginning to ask questions about, you know, what is Christmas all about? Why, what is this season? Is it, is it gifts? I, I hear about this person, Jesus, but there's also Santa and reindeer. And what is Christmas all about? And she says at one point in this essay, uh, this is her account of Christmas. She says, in the northern parts of the world, the winters are long and cold and dark and people would get sad and miserable. So they have always, in the very depths of winter, from the beginning of recorded time, celebrated light, life, and the promise of renewal and new birth, just when they most needed cheering up. And they would store food and eat and eat and drink and be merry. And in time, different cultures and creeds passed over the world and changed and added to the stories about why we are celebrating and said that perhaps we were celebrating because of a green man or Mithras, or Sol, or because the baby Jesus was being born, or because Santa Claus is flying over the world. Look here, NASA even tracks him by satellite. And now, like all, and now, like all the millions of people who lived before us, we too use midwinter to see our family and exchange gifts, and feast and be merry and carry on traditions from our ancestors. I think for many people, and it's easy, 
even as followers of Jesus, it's easy to get sort of caught up in the in the festivities of Christmas. But many people look at the holidays, look at the season that we're now in, as sort of being this ancient tradition that was passed down by sort of uh, you know Nordic tribes who were cold and near, needed cheering up, so they invented tales and myths uh, to bring them light and life and the promise of renewal that spring was coming. Um, the, the, the problem with that, well, there's, there's a couple of problems with that. One is uh, this author, by her own admission, says earlier on in the essay, she says this. She says, you know, we have to account for Christmas. We have to account for this holiday somehow. So let's just go back to these mythic tales and figures that have no real bearing in reality. Because, she says, of, and I'm quoting her, because, of course, accepting the Christmas story, as it's given to us in the Gospel account, means accepting a whole bunch of other stuff. Doctrine, perhaps, not quite so tea towel and stuffed lamb friendly. What she's saying is, you have to account for Christmas. She's not really looking at it through the lens of history or asking whether or not the story itself is true. She's saying, I really don't want to accept Christianity or Christmas as being true because it means I have to accept a bunch of other doctrine about reality, about my own life, that gets really uncomfortable. It's not tea towel. It's not stuffed lamb friendly. Uh, do you see what she's saying there? Now, let me just cut to the bottom line. The bottom line here is that in Luke chapter 3, Luke is recording for us real history. That's why he says in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, he's recording actual people. Tiberius Caesar, the second, the second emperor of Rome, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, He's recording real places that have been confirmed by actual evidence from history, actual archaeological digs, uh, 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 source material from the first century. This is something that really happened. And so as C.S. As Lewis says, you know, there may be, there may be myths from uh, tribes uh, around the world, from different cultures where uh, sort of the divine enters into our world, uh, and you can find those stories from all different parts of the world, all over the place, from various times of history. And C.S. Lewis says, the difference with Christianity is, in Christianity, in the story of Christmas, all of those myths about the divine breaking into our world became fact. Uh, Christianity deals with particular dates, uh, particular people, definable historical consequences. That's why in the Creed we say he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. This isn't just a myth that happened that we celebrate to bring us good cheer in the dead of midwinter. This is something that really happened. It really matters. And the author, I love how she just candidly admits that we can't admit that the story is real because it, it actually has, uh, it means we need to accept a whole other host of truths and doctrine. Uh, if you know some of the old Christmas carols, you know the one that says, uh, you know, uh, let all mortal flesh keep silence. One of the verses in that, in that old carol says something like this, Christ our God to earth descendeth, our full homage to demand. Um, 
Christmas is real, but Christmas also demands something. Christ our God to earth descendeth. Our full homage to demand. That means our full allegiance. Christmas demands something. What does it demand? It demands repentance. That's what John was going around doing. He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance. If you know anything about the ministry of John, uh, in other gospel accounts, the very first word out of John's mouth in the gospels is repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus uh, will come just in the very next chapter, and he'll give the same sermon that John was given. Uh, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Peter, at the very beginning of the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit has fallen in Pentecost, one of the very first things Peter will say when people ask him, what shall we do? He'll say, repent and be baptized. All of you. There's this theme of repentance that's traced from John to Jesus to the apostles. And it's the very first word that comes out of their mouth. And it's actually, I think, the very first word of the Christian life. Repent. Uh, these, these are what these people are asked. Uh, what should we do? And John says, repent. So what is repentance? Well, repentance is, I think it's, you can you can get a little bit confused from this passage, but John is entirely clear. I think some people would look at this passage and say, um, well, what is repentance, John? And they would look and say, here's what John is telling these people to do. He's saying, um, whoever has two tunics, go and share with him who has none. Uh, he's talking to the tax collectors and say, collect no more than what you're authorized to do. So a lot of people look at this passage and say, oh, repentance is, is doing the right thing, is, is turning away from doing the wrong thing and doing the right thing instead. But notice what John says. That's not actually what he says. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So he says there's something that happens in a person's life from which good fruits uh, uh, come out of that. Uh, you doing, you performing right and doing the right behaviors, you becoming a generous person, a selfless person, a kind person, a charitable person, an honest person, are the fruits that come out of repentance, but they're not the repentance themselves. They're not the repentance themselves. So what is repentance? We'll look at the analogy that John gives there. He says, um, he, he begins this sermon and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that repentance he describes as an axe being laid to the root of a tree. So there's something about repentance that deals with the roots, not the fruits. The fruits are, are come out of repentance. They are in keeping with repentance. But repentance itself has to do with the root. So what is the root? What is he getting at? Well, I think it has to do with this uh, theme that John is preaching about. If you noticed at the very beginning of of Luke 3, he says um, Luke is connecting the ministry of John to the ministry, the words of Isaiah the prophet. And what Isaiah said in Isaiah 40 is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now what Luke is referring to there and what Isaiah is referring to there is in the ancient world, um, their technology for um, paving roads was hardly, uh, like, was just non-existent. So a road for normal people would just be like a little trail that you might find 
um, that you might hike in out, out in the hills over here. It was just a road that over years people had walked down, perhaps they had ridden a horse down, but they were narrow roads, they were small roads, and they were just worn away by, by years, centuries of people traveling down them. The problem was when an emperor would come to town, when a person like Sennacherib or Nebuchadnezzar or Alexander the Great would come to town, um, those roads, those little winding paths were insufficient for the entourage that that emperor or king would bring into town. And so what they would do is they would have um, huge work crews that would clear, literally clear the way for those emperors to come into a village. And before those work crews would come, they would have messengers who would say, um, the king is coming. You need, we need to prepare the way. There can't be any sort of boulders in the, in the road. There can't be any crooked paths. This is going to be an entire entourage of the king as he comes into town. So what does that have to do with what John is saying? John is the messenger of that king. And he's saying, you need to prepare the roads. You need to make straight the roads for this king to come. What does that mean? Well, I think he's asking each and every one of us this morning. He's asking all of his contemporaries and by extension, all of us. Who are we treating as king? Um, who in our life is functioning as our king, as the Lord of our entire life? Are we coming to this Jesus and treating him like a king? Or are we treating him like a personal assistant? Or are we treating him like a person that we come to when we're in trouble? Or are we relying and trusting and serving this king? See, John is saying the axe is, is at the root of the tree. What is the thing that you are drawing uh, your resources from? What is, the, what is the person, what is the thing that you are looking to when your life begins to fall apart? What are you looking to for energy, for motivation, for, uh, for the thing that brings you um, hope and resources in life? John is saying that thing, that person, whatever that is, is functioning as your king. So he's saying it's not, what you need is not a change of behavior. It's not just that you need to bear fruit and change your life and change the things that you're doing. You actually need to change your heart. You need to change your, uh, the, the very root of your personhood, the very root, the thing that, the thing that is ultimately motivating you in life. Uh, and if you know anything about John, you know that what he's testifying to is a power, is a reality that is outside of us. If you know anything about your heart, if you know anything about the drives of your heart, if you know anything about the core of who you are as a person, you know that, that you cannot change that yourself. You need a power from outside of you. You need someone who can come in, who can who is outside of this reality, who can come in and change something that is stone into, a, into something that is flesh. That's why John says, look, the, the, the king that I'm testifying about, the king that I'm witnessing to, he can take from these stones and make children of Abraham. You need a power outside of you to change the core of who you are. Christianity isn't interested in 
in just changing your behavior and making you a nice person or a moral person or a likable person. Christianity demands your repentance, which means changing the fundamental allegiance, the fundamental root of your entire life. So Christmas is real. Christmas demands repentance. It demands a change at the very core of your personhood that needs to come from outside of yourself. And then finally, Christmas is received. So John is testifying to a king who's saying, look, you have your little roads uh, that zigzag around, but when I come into your life, you need to ally yourself. You need to align yourself with who I am and my program, my kingdom. Uh, and that can only happen once you realize who this king is. And so John is saying, there's a king. And he's saying, that king is the king who's in every sin, that king's law is broken. Um, that king's um, allegiance is, is thwarted. His love is wounded in every sin. That's why John says wrath is coming. He says that in, uh, uh, I don't know if I have the verses here, but halfway through the middle of the page he said, he said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Wrath is coming. And he's using very particular language with the he with, and the Hebrews at that time, the Jews at that time, would have immediately clued them into a reality that they knew about from the very beginning of their Bibles. When a viper, a snake, came to Adam and Eve, the very first uh, uh, people of the human race, uh, and whispered into their ears, whispered poison into their ears that said, uh, God doesn't want what's best for you. This king, he... He wants your allegiance, but he's going to take everything. You can't trust him. He doesn't love you. He doesn't want what's best for you. And that's why John is saying, you're a brood of vipers. All of you, we're all, we all have this poison in our minds and in our hearts that says we can't trust God. We can't believe God. God doesn't love us. He doesn't care for us. He doesn't want what's best for us. And John says that it's, a, it's on account of that poison that seeped into the very the fabric of who we are, that wrath is coming. Wrath is coming because all of that, all of that poison, all of that junk, all of the mess of our lives needs to be cleared away. And any of you who are parents know that when your child's life is in danger, when something about uh, the safety of your kids is at stake, you can become a very hostile, angry person because you want your child to experience life and joy and happiness. And so John is saying wrath is coming. Wrath is coming to people who have accepted the lie of the viper, who are living in the viper's nest. But notice what also he says. He says he's coming with a baptism of repentance for what? For the forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness of sins. That at the very heart of Christmas, at the very heart of Christianity, is a remarkable truth that it's not something about what you've done. It's not something about uh, how you need to get God to like you. Uh, it's, it has nothing to do with your performance or how you do or even the fruits that you bear. It has to do with forgiveness that is offered to you. 
forgiveness that is given to you. And how does that come about? How does that forgiveness come about? Well, you know from the old carols uh, that that forgiveness comes about because of Jesus, because of the one that John is testifying to. That old carol says, Nails, spear, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. There's two themes that are, that are going on in this passage in Luke, in Luke 3. One is of the wrath to come, but then, as Isaiah talks about, all flesh shall see the salvation of, the God, of God. So you have these two themes running in parallel with each other. One is the wrath that is coming, but also the fact that salvation is coming. And the story of Christmas, the story of Christianity, is how those two themes finally intersect. They finally come together. How can you have wrath for sinners, but also at the same time, the forgiveness of sins, the salvation of God, and friends, you get them at the cross. You get them at the cross where Jesus was the one who was cut down and thrown into the fire. You get them at the cross where Jesus was the one who endured and absorbed God's wrath on the cross, the very Son of God, so that you could have forgiveness. What does that mean? It means two things. One, it means that if you're here today and you are, you, you're going about uh, your life and you're pretty impressed with who you are, uh, you feel secure, uh, you feel like, um, you know, I've got, I've, I've got things in order. You're like the mountain that Isaiah is testifying to here. You need to understand that you need to be made low. Uh, that, 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 the, that the Son of God, that Jesus himself had to give his life on the cross to atone and pay for your sins. You need to be brought low. You're a mountain that needs to be brought low. But there's some of you here, you're, you're like the valley. Uh, you're like the valley that Isaiah talks about, the valley that needs to be filled. And friends, if you're here and you're burdened by the weight of your sin... Uh, you're burdened by the weight of your shame, by the secrets that you're carrying with you, then you need to be filled up. You need to know that Jesus loves you. The Son of God loves you so much that he was willing to lay down his life for you. On account of your sins, that's how much he loves you. Christmas is real. It demands repentance. But it's also received. It's a free gift. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. All you need to do is, like we're going to do in just a moment here, hold out your hands and receive the gift that Jesus offers. Receive the forgiveness. Receive uh, double for all your sins. Not just forgiveness, but access to God. Righteousness given as a free gift. The record of Jesus given to you by true faith. So would you believe that this morning? Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, that we're not just throwing out prayers to ourselves or a universe, a impersonal cosmic force, but we're praying to a real God, a God who existed before all time, a God who, by His very word, spoke, and everything that we. See came into existence a God who took on flesh in real history at a real place under Tiberius Caesar uh, 
and you came and you lived a perfect life and you died on the cross to absorb your just wrath against sin so that we could be fully forgiven, fully cleansed, fully washed, so that our lives could be reoriented and run in sync with your will. Father, thank you so much for the gift of Christmas. Thank you that it's received. Thank you that even repentance is a saving grace. It's not something that we work up in ourselves. It's it's something that we, based on the reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, are moved towards, apart from our own wills even. So Father, we pray that you would move us that we would see the beauty of Christmas, the reality of Christmas, and that we would receive it with open hands. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.